Well, I want to welcome, as Rick did, each of you back to this study that we have in the Psalms of Scripture, a study that we've titled Certain Truth for Uncertain Times. And this morning, we're returning specifically to our study in one of the most favorite psalms, one of the most important psalms, Psalm 51. So if you have your Bibles, open them, please, to Psalm 51 as we look at what is part two of a study that we've titled The Desperate Plea of a Broken Man. The Desperate Plea of a Broken Man, Part 2. And I'm going to read to you Psalm 51 just to get our minds focused on this great peace of God. Psalm 51, for the choir director, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the abundance of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and pure when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you delight in truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation, and then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips, that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offerings and a whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the reading of God's word. It has been said that few psalms have found as much use as this one among the saints of all ages. In fact, which bears the witness of spiritual needs to the people of God. One writer said Psalm 51 stands as a paradigm of prayers for the forgiveness of sins. According to historians, both Sir Thomas More and Lady Jane Grey recited this psalm when they were on the scaffold as martyrs during the reigns of Henry VIII and Queen Mary. Henry V requested that it be read to him on his deathbed. And when the great Christian missionary William Carey was suffering from a dangerous illness, the inquiry was made, if this sickness should prove fatal, what passage would you select as the text in your funeral sermon? He replied, oh, I feel that such a poor sinful creature is unworthy to have anything said about him. 
But if a funeral sermon must be preached, let it be from the words, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions from Psalm 51. So such is the rich, rich history of this mighty Psalm of David. Now, as we return to the study of Psalm 51, it's important, I think, that we remember some of what we covered last time to keep us kind of in the flow of this great, great song of repentance. If you were with us last time, then you do remember we spent the whole of our morning doing something that usually we don't do, and that is we exposited the superscription of the psalm itself. In other words, we spent the whole of our time unpacking the inspired section that comes before the verses themselves, the part of the psalm that is very much as inspired as the rest of the text. That's why I read it to you in your hearing. But one that many times is just overlooked or briefly mentioned. You see, many times folks just skip past the words that precede the psalm because they believe that perhaps someone, uh, maybe they think the editor of the translation or someone like them, has taken the liberty to kind of take a summary of the psalm or a statement in some way that makes it really words of no true relevance. At other times, however, even though the reader might understand that the superscription is inspired by God, still they believe that it's not crucial to the understanding and the interpretation of the psalm, and so they just ignore it. However, in this particular psalm, as we spoke of last time, what we see in this superscription makes all the difference of how we understand this psalm because this is the psalm of a broken man and how we can discern why he was broken and the different stages of his brokenness help us to comprehend it. What is it that we discovered last time? Well, something that I believe that really changes the depth and the breadth of this entire psalm, that being that the circumstances that surround the authorship of this psalm surround much more than just the adultery of King David with Bathsheba, as clearly the superscription points out, but also that the superscription is pointing to an entire time period, an entire epic that encompassed the death of Bathsheba's husband Uriah, as well as the confrontation of David by the prophet Nathan, as well as the judgment that David's newborn son with Bathsheba had to endure, as rest as the whole family, even the nation, on account of what David had done. In fact, if our calculations are correct, this psalm was penned sometime after Nathan's confrontation of 2 Samuel 12, 15, and before David's child's death in 2 Samuel 12, 19. So sometime between those seven days that it took for David's son to die, sometime during the lifespan of just four verses, this psalm of confession was penned. Now, why do I say that? Because after the boy died, after his son had died, David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself, changed his clothes, and the text tells us in 2 Samuel, worshipped Yahweh. So no longer was David pleading with God to save his son. No longer was he doing that to change his mind. No longer was David wrestling in tears before Yahweh, trying to go before or twist the arm of the Almighty. No, David now had moved on. 
David now was no longer pleading with God. He had to deal with the consequences of his sin. He had to continue on with his rule as king over Israel. He had to continue on in his new role as husband to Bathsheba. David had to move on. He had to move on from his wickedness to the rest of what God had determined for his life. But for seven days before that, from the moment Nathan the prophet had left the room in 2 Samuel 12, 15, to the end of his son's life, David's only preoccupation was not to allow his son to die on account of what David had done. This is what it took to burst the bubble of pride and treachery in David's heart. This is what it took to this man of lust and deceit and selfishness and bloodshed to come to his senses and fall before the Lord in repentance. For almost a year, at least nine months, King David had fallen headlong into sin. For almost a whole year, King David had silenced the screaming conscience within his soul. But now when the weight of his sins came crashing down upon his head, David writes Psalm 51 for all of us to understand. The words that we're about to study are the words that flow from his agony. The the words that flow from his brokenness. The verses that we're about before us today are verses that result in massive grief and guilt and shame because of what he had done that had completely engulfed David in a way that was unknown to anyone around him. For over a year, think of it, he had nothing to say to anyone. For over a year, he had confessed nothing to Bathsheba though he knew, she knew obviously of the adultery between the two of them, but whether or not she knew of the plot that he had to murder her husband, we cannot know. He confessed nothing to God, though God knows everything. And he had confessed nothing to his own soul. This is the important point. Though he knew the truth in his inner man, yet nothing concerning the weight of his own wickedness could even be formed into a sentence in his mouth. Even though his body was decaying and wasting away bit by bit until finally he would confess and be forgiven. But for our time this morning, I want to impress upon you just the tremendous burden that was weighing upon David's back. And I want you to do that with me to grasp the extent that God will go to to rescue his favored one from total ruin. So for our time this morning, I want to impress upon you the same burden that was forced upon David, the same burden that made him finally confess his sin as a warning to us all about the links that God will go to to make sure that his chosen children will confess their sin and will be forgiven and will be restored. For David, it took a prophet from God to disarm him through an indirect story of injustice so that finally he would break his silence. So let's go back to the story of the injustice in 2 Samuel 12 to help us wrap. I know you're saying, I thought we were studying Psalm 51. I thought, I know, we're going to get there. But just go back, I promise, to 2 Samuel 12 just for a moment. It seems like this has been more of a study of 2 Samuel 12. I gather that, I understand And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I think it's important to keep us up to date with what's going on in this psalm. In 2 Samuel 12, 
I want you to note with me just the confrontation of Nathan. First, in verses 5 and 6, we have this affirmation. We have the affirmation, this man should die from David's own mouth. See that with me in verses 5 and 6. David, after hearing the story about this poor shepherd, David's anger burned greatly against the man, the man that Nathan had made up, and said to Nathan, as Yahweh lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die, and he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and had no compassion. That leads us to verse 7, which is the confirmation. Nathan says, you are the man. From the prophet of God himself comes this, this affirmation, this confirmation that David is the one whom he's speaking of. Then comes the condemnation in verses 7 and 8. You'll see Nathan said, you're the man, thus says Yahweh. Listen to this. The God of Israel, it is I who anointed you king over Israel. And it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave your master's house and your master's wives into your care. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of Yahweh by doing evil in his sight? Verse 9, you have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. So now the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says Yahweh, still Nathan speaking, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives from before your sight and give them to your companion. And he will lie with your wives in the sight of this son. Indeed, you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. And then Nathan said to David said to Nathan, I have sinned against Yahweh. And Nathan said to David, Yahweh also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because of this deed, you have given occasion to the enemies of Yahweh to blaspheme. The son also that is born to you shall surely die. This condemnation from Nathan, I anointed you king, talking about what God is saying, I anointed you, I give this house to you, I have affirmed the fact that I have given you everything, leads to the fact of a cross-examination in verse 9, why would you do this to me then, God says, why would you strike down Uriah and his wife, why would you do this, he makes this moment so clear to the affirmation in verses 11 and 14, the consequences of what you have done, David, you have despised me, and now death will be in your house. Death, verse 10, will be in your whole household. Shame on your whole household, verse 11 and 12. And there will be forgiveness to you, and we'll get back to that in a moment, but you will have to witness your son who was born in sin, will die, verse 13 and 14. Why am I so emphatic in the way that I'm saying this? Because this is the power of sin. This is the power. These are the consequences, listen to this, of forgiven sin. 
Not every time, not every situation, but this is the weight of what David had to deal with. With great responsibility comes great culpability. With great responsibility comes great vulnerability. What David had done was personal to God, as we're going to see later in this psalm. And what David had done had to be revealed in terms that went beyond his own life. Listen to this. His own suffering, David's sin, affected much more than Bathsheba and himself. David's sin affected the nation itself. David's sin affected the Savior himself. And David's sin affected his family itself. There is a time that comes where you must come to grips with the fact that your sin reverberates way beyond you. That your sin has ripples that flow way beyond the act itself, way beyond the thought itself. That the consequence of sin can seep its way into the life of your wife and your friends and your ministry and your family. When you thought the secret sin was just between you and God. It was between you and God. And because of that, your sin has ripple effects that go way beyond what you ever imagined. This is David's reality. Now, we might question how could it be that Yahweh could take the life of David's son as a consequence for the sin of his father. And that would be understandable. People have come to me and asked me this question. You have heard the expression from Shakespeare, most likely in The Merchant of Venice, The sins of the father are to be laid upon the children. And you may have wondered if you heard that, where did that expression come from? Well, just as a side point, the phrase sins of the fathers appears in the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy and Exodus. And the phrase also appears in the book of Numbers and Jeremiah. So the phrase is linked to the keeping of the commandments and the consequences of sin Passing through generations. Sin does have consequences. Sin does have consequences. The children of those who sin do in fact inherit the seed of sin and the sin nature. Moreover, certain sins carry what is called intergenerational consequences. You might think of it this way. People have been abused. Uh, People abuse alcohol. There's all kinds of different personal assaults and violations of the image of God in the human being. To say it succinctly, children may suffer on account of the sins committed by their forebearers, just as they also may be blessed for their sake. Nevertheless, Scripture teaches that each individual must take responsibility for his or her own sin. Now, let me examine that with you for a moment because it weighs heavily on what it is I want to speak of this morning. Let's examine a few quotes from Scripture. And you can just take this down. I'm going to go through it quickly. On one side of the coin, we have this. Exodus 20, verse 5. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Numbers 14, 18. The Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and by no means clearing the guilty, 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the sons to the third and fourth generation. Deuteronomy 5, 9 through 10. You shall not bow yourself down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the sons to the third and fourth generations to those that hate me and doing mercy to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Jeremiah 32, 17. Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You show love to thousands, but bring punishment for the parents' sins in the laps of their children after them. Great and almighty God, those whose name is Lord Almighty. On the other side of the coin, however, you have this, and this you can turn to Ezekiel 18. Turn to Ezekiel 18. It is an entire chapter. Uh, It's 32 verses. I am not going to read it in its entirety to you, but I think it's important that you have it in your mind. Ezekiel 18, verses 1 through 32. And let me just highlight as I go quickly through what it is that the prophet says God has spoken to him. Ezekiel 18, Then the word of Yahweh came to me, saying, What do you mean by using this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers eat the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge? As I live, declares the Lord Yahweh, you are surely not going to use this proverb in Israel anymore. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins will die. But if a man is righteous and does justice and righteousness and does not eat at the mountain shrines or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel or defile his neighbor's wife or approach a woman during her menstrual period, if a man does not mistreat anyone but returns to the debtor his pledge, does not commit robbery, but gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with clothing, if he does not lend money on interest or take decree increase, if he turns his hand from injustice and does true justice between man and man, if he walks in my statutes and my judgments and is careful to do the truth, he is righteous and he will surely live, declares Yahweh. Then he may have a violent son who sheds blood and who does any of these things to a brother. Although he himself did not do any of these things, that is, he even eats at the mountain shrines and defiles a neighbor's wife and mistreats the afflicted and the needy, does not return a pledge, lifts up his eyes to idols. Verse 14. Now behold, he has a son who has seen all his father's sins, which he has done, and he saw this, but he does not do likewise. He does not eat at the mountain shrines and lift up his eyes, idols of the house who defiles a neighbor's wife. He goes to verse 18, as for his father, excuse me, verse 17, but his judgments and walks in my statutes, he will not die for his father's iniquity. He will surely live. You can read the rest of this chapter. It goes on with different scenarios, but the idea is the sins of the father for one who has turned and repented, the sons will not be uh, occurred to them. They will not have to pay for the sins of their fathers for they have turned. And you can have a righteous father, he goes on to say, a righteous man, and the son is wrong and evil and does, commits sin. He will still be not accrued, accommodated his father's righteousness. He will be dealt with as a sinner, for God deals with each soul individually. So, you have two aspects of this. 
It's clear that the sins of the father do trickle down into the lives of the children. The patterns of sin and the consequences of sin do affect the family. But each soul is responsible for either breaking the curse or living in it. Each son and daughter may have inherited a pattern or a consequence of their parents' sin. And each individual sinner is vulnerable to sin. But as creations of God, they are responsible to God as well and can do righteousness and plead with God to save them and reverse the cycle that their fathers began. Now, the infant of David's relationship with Bathsheba was innocent of sin. He was born in sin, as we shall see. David speaks of this in Psalm 51. But the consequences of his father's sin, his father's actions, was the catalyst for his death. Do you understand? It was the catalyst for his death. For the child, that meant instant heaven. But for David, it meant prolonged agony. So why do I place this all before you? Why am I going into such detail? Because David had all of this flash before his eyes as the prophet Nathan spoke. David saw what he had done and what he had refused to admit for months and months and months. And now he realized that God was serious, that God was going to allow the weight of David's sin to be experienced through the sword of his own home and the death of his son in the next week. And that is what drove David to write Psalm 51. Though his child would die, David believed that perhaps God might be merciful to him and reverse what he had enacted. And so this entire psalm, and this is so important to hang your thoughts on, is written before the child dies, while he's still a week away from his death. And so David prays and prays and prays, hoping that this prayer might reverse the cycle of his sin. He actually says that in 2 Samuel 12, 22. I thought, after he is told the child has died, who knows, the Lord might be gracious to me and let the child live. That's why I was praying. That's why I was before the Lord. The truth is, the Lord was gracious to David. Gracious even in the death of his son, Because the Lord allowed David to live and rule and go on and fight for the people of God. And the Lord was gracious to the child in that boy would never have to experience the horrible and hard ways of this life. Death was better for him than the life of Absalom would ever happen to him. The life of Absalom would never be the life of that boy. But David hoped that his honest, forthright, transparent plea before God might change what God had determined. Listen, prayer does not change God. Prayer changes us. Prayer does not change God. We cannot move the hand of God to act against his own will. And that's why Jesus prayed, your will be done. But sometimes our prayers, and this is key, are used by God to weave our pleas into his providence to produce those desires that we offer before him if it is considered to be according to his will. So we are not to think of Psalm 51 as an attempt to twist the arm of God for the survival of David's son. I don't want you to think that. But instead, I would 
Rather, you think of Psalm 51 as an expression of a broken man's heart toward his maker as the weight of his wretched sin comes crashing upon his head. James Montgomery Boyce wisely reminds us, quote, let us remember that everything we do affects other people, whether for good or evil. It is not true that we can sin as long as it does not hurt anyone because sin always hurts someone. But it is also true that those who confess their sin find forgiveness and renewal, teach others the ways of God and become a blessing. Now, at this point, I want to remind you that we are actually going to go through this psalm together. It is true. I know you doubt me, and I I understand your doubt. And as I mentioned last time, I spoke that we've broken this psalm down into seven different aspects about God's person that ties together his forgiveness and man's repentance. Seven different aspects about God's himself that is intimately tied to David's prayer of repentance. And as I give these to you, I, I do so not just to, because they're reflected in the verses that follow, because they are, but also because one day when you and I must turn from our sin, when the day comes that everything you try to gain for yourself through sin is lost and crumbles, when your family and friends and ambition and dreams come crashing down, these seven truths about God and repentance will guide you, I pray, as they guided David in the journey back to God. And this morning I want to look at just a few of these seven truths. Just one, actually. (laughs) And then we'll complete the rest of these verses in the weeks to unfold. So instead of giving you all seven up front, as is my usual practice, let's just take them one by one. So number one. Uh, with all that before us, let's look at the first aspect about God's person that ties together his forgiveness and man's repentance, the first thought about God himself that intimately is tied to David's prayer of repentance. Number one, God's compassion is our only ground for petition. God's compassion is our only ground for petition. And we see this in verses one and two. David writes, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the abundance of your compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Now, with all that we've reviewed, I think the first thought takes on a massive amount of weight, this very first thought. Here, David broken by the confrontation, laying flat, if you can picture it, from 2 Samuel, upon his face before God, tears flowing down because he has broken his heart, hearing the cries of his son, his infant son, in the other room, already stricken by the consequences of David's sin. And yet he prays for God's compassion upon him. Remember, as I mentioned earlier in 2 Samuel 12, 13, Nathan the prophet had already told King David, Yahweh, remember, has taken away your sin. You shall not die. Remember, King David already knew that the greatness of his sin had been put away. 
But it's interesting to note that there in 2 Samuel 12, the verb that is also translated taken away is found frequently in the Old Testament and has a wide variety of meanings. What does it mean his sin was taken away? The root meaning of the verb to pass on or to cross over or to pass by. And the form there is causative, that is, to cause to pass over or by. Some people actually translate it transferred and comments that the verb means more than just has been put away. Sin cannot be just simply forgot. It must be atoned for. Thus, if David himself is not to die, the sin must be transferred to someone else. If this analysis is true, Some say it means that David may have understood in his mind that his sin is being transferred to this innocent child born of this union between David and Bathsheba. So some would translate by saying, has laid on another the consequence of your sin. That's from the United Bible Society's handbook on the second book of Samuel. So here's a massive truth. A truth that we must not, we cannot pass over. And that is, and again, our sin has much more to do with others than we once might have suspected. So when I say, or when someone says, I'm really struggling with sin right now, this statement cannot be seen as an independent clause. It cannot be seen as a struggle that is singular and solitary. No, your sin affects much more than you. You, And David was living proof of that reality. The consequence of your sin is like a spider's web that sticks to anything that attempts to draw close to it. It is a web that is far-reaching and traps everything it touches. And like a web, no matter how much you might try to free yourself from its sticky glue, It remains upon you, and its thin strands refuse to let you go, snagging you tighter and tighter towards the inevitable capture. Though David obviously was not alive during the lifetime of the Lord Jesus Christ, David knew Messiah would come. David knew that he couldn't pay for the sins he had committed, and even the boy himself couldn't be any lasting substitute. Only Jesus Christ the sinless, spotless Lamb of God could take away the sin of the fallen king. But nevertheless, in this moment, David may have known that his sin was forgiven because the prophet had told him so, but his petition before Yahweh, ironically, was to have compassion on him even for the consequences of his sin. So here is David completely engulfed in the truth of his own sin, feeling the consequences for what he's done, touching the lives of those people who are closest to him. And so he cries out to Yahweh for compassion to blot out my sin because only Yahweh can be sought to do such a tremendous work. More than my sin being taken away, more than my life not having to die, I need compassion. I need compassion on the deepest level to reverberate all throughout my sinful soul to make me whole again. That's why we see in Psalm 51, verse 1, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to your loving kindness. 
Charles Spurgeon notes he appeals at once to the mercy of God even before he mentions his sin. The sight of mercy is good for eyes that are sore with weeping. Pardon of sin must ever be an act of pure mercy and therefore to attribute the awakened sinner flies. You see, God's loving kindness, God's compassion, God's sole ability to forgive and to be faithful and to never budge from the fidelity of his own glory is the sinner's only true hope. Does that make sense? That is our only true hope. It is the sinner's only hope that God's covenant-keeping, steadfast love is the grounds for the sinner to bow their hearts before God. And that's why this psalm begins with this petition, be gracious, be gracious. He's describing a heartfelt response by someone who has something to give to one who has need. It generally implied a favor, neither expected or deserved. It is a free bestowal of free favor from God to an undeserving man or woman. In modern Hebrew, the word seems to stress stronger the meaning of to pardon or to show mercy. Mercy denotes God's loving assistance to the pitiful. It has this idea of affliction expressed by moaning over the object we love, the natural affection and tenderness which beasts of the animal kingdom show to their young by the several noises they make over them. What a picture that is. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, translates be gracious with the verb that's in the aorist imperative. So it's a strong, it's a bold plea for God to show great concern for David, for he is in great need. I am in great need, so show this compassion. What is that need? By now, I'm hoping that you know. But Thomas Brooks paints it for us this way, the Puritan. May man by nature is vainglorious creature, apt to boast and brag of the sins that he's free of, but unwilling to confess the sins that he is guilty of. There are no men so prone to conceal their own wickedness as those who are most forward to proclaim their own goodness. There are many who are not ashamed to commit sin, who yet are ashamed to confess sin. But certainly of all shame, That is the most shameful shame which leads a man to hide his sins. Well, David could not hide his sins anymore. And if you were with us when we studied Psalm 32, which you might remember is intimately connected to Psalm 51 because it was written after Psalm 51 at that initial realization of sin, David then writes this full confession of sin and open celebration of the Lord's forgiveness. In Psalm 32, you can go back and listen to that. You might remember that the same trio of words here that David uses for sin in Psalm 32 verse 1 is the same trio of words that David uses for sin here in Psalm 51 verse 1. He's he's the same author using the same terms in the same beginning of his psalms. The three elements of sin was ever before the king as he prayed. And I want to go through these with you with the time that we have briefly. He says these three Hebrew words. The first is the sin is transgression, which means a going away or a departure. He rebelled against God. First and foremost, forgive me for that. That's what makes sin so dreadful. It's a transgression, not just against other people, but it's a sin against the Lord God 
who made us. In fact, it often appears in contexts where transgressions are a deliberate act of rebellion against God. That's why in verse 4, as we shall see one day against you and you only, I have sinned and done evil. In the light of the enormity of his sin against God, other matters start to unfold and start to fade. The second word for sin is translated just that, sin in verse 1. He says, according to the abundance of your compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash me from my iniquity, cleanse me, verse 2, from my sin. Meaning to come short, to fall short. In the ancient world, it was used of archery to describe a person who shoots a target and the arrow falls short. And then the third word is iniquity, which in the New International Version is also translated sin, corrupt, twisted. So again, David is speaking of every single avenue, every single aspect of sin against God, and he is going before him. I'm twisted. My heart has been wrong. I, I, I agree with you. I have indulged in sin. And like Psalm 32, each of these terms have a corresponding petition to it. He says, first, verse 1, blot out my transgressions. When you think of blotting out, most likely you're like me. You think of taking away excessive ink that has spilled. But the verb actually means more to scrape off, to remove. It's a plea for Yahweh to scrape off a clean slate, to remove all the sin Verse 2, he says, wash me, not just blot out, but wash me thoroughly. And you're going to see there that wash and thoroughly are both verbs, and both are imperatives in the Hebrew. And so the literal is awkward in the English, but it could be rendered something like multiply to wash me, multiply to wash me. The metaphor of washing is also something to remind yourself in an ancient mode of laundering clothes, which would be soaked and soaped and beat, and run out, and rinsed. It's not just putting in a washer and dryer. David pictures himself as dirty and polluted in clothing that needs a deep cleansing, and so he's asking God to beat the dirt out of me. Thoroughly in English means fully, completely, carried through to completion. These ideas of serving to help us to understand the degree of washing that David is petitioning God. One commentator says it this way, we need a cleansing which reaches the very center of the being. The stains are deep. The purifying process must go on until they are all removed. The ancient method of washing clothes was why beating or treading, and David asked God even to tread him down if necessary to remove the foul spots, end quote. And then lastly, verse 2b, cleanse me, which normally would describe the process of ritual purification, washing with water, and where we get the word catharsis, a cleansing. It's the word they use for the cleansing of the lepers in Matthew 8, as well as figuratively in 1 John 1, where it talks about the purifying or cleansing of sin from a guilty conscience. So the summary of all that. For this is first aspect, this first vital truth about God's reason that ties its forgiveness to man's repentance. Namely is this, God's compassion is our only ground for petition. And His grace and loving kindness, His empathy and compassionate love is the only reason a sinner can pray. David had sinned too much. David's sin was too wicked. 
David's sin was so heavy for him to bear that even he couldn't lift a finger towards heaven to summons God to his rescue. He had to base everything that he based on the fact that God's compassion was enough and David's condition was undone. There are six more truths here in Psalm 51. And we're going to see that next time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a massive psalm. No wonder historians and those all throughout church history have seen this psalm as the psalm that epitomizes their need for you. And Father, we see the same thing. We are all sinners whether sin has been confessed or whether sin is still being held within the heart of those that are here, we all agree theologically we have sinned, we do sin, and we shall sin again. And yet when we look at David, we realize that this unconfessed sin affects more than just ourselves. The sin that we commit, holy God, forgive us, affects those around us affects brothers and sisters whom we love, affects children and wives and husbands that we have committed our lives to, that the ripple effect is sordid and deep and widespread. We resonate with David seeing the weight of this sin on him, producing in him a repentance that is pure, a repentance that is deep, and a repentance that is lasting. So, Father, we pray that as we look through these different truths, beginning even next week, that we look at the different aspects of our lives and how we, too, can use this psalm to turn our hearts towards your compassion. We ask all of this in the name of Christ, who is our only hope. Amen.